0: Well, I am, uh, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm on the back end of whatever the heck that is going around, Um, but I am on the back end of it. It is behind me. I had a good talk with it this morning to let it know exactly where it is and where it belongs, and uh, we're moving on. So, um, you know, it always helps when you are on the back end of something like this to uh, have a day like I did yesterday in a bus full of high schoolers. Going to Butte, and you know I don't know I don't know how you pronounce Butte, but I can't think of another way to say Butte. Um, even the people that are from Butte say it like that. So um, anyway, I'm really not sure where that's going to go, so I better just maybe hit the off ramp and move on with our day. Um, but. Uh, I do just want to uh, you know, kind of bring out a little bit of, of just a, a awareness of, of all the stuff going on, uh, whether it's like, like sickness, whether it is just you know, like, like a burden, uh, a, a time of burden, maybe just like one thing that, that I felt and kind of, you know, even as we were driving yesterday, and, and I'll tell you, there is few better ways to spend uh, a Saturday morning than um, driving across Montana as the sun comes up with snow on the ground. I mean, you you talked about the beauty of of creation and just being surrounded. It was pretty awesome. But one of the things that that I just felt as we were traveling was just like a lot of clouds. And then thinking about like the the intense cold that we just came out of, it it just it, it makes it feel like everything is impossible or everything is even more difficult. That cold is when it gets to be negative stupid out. It just like everything is affected. Everything takes longer. I mean it just you know and, and so I just am deciding that uh you know the world may want us to feel that way, but we're not gonna. Because what we just sang, you know, we we singing a hallelujah, that's what we have. We have we have the words of life, we have the reality of life, and, and we have the sun out today and it's warm. So maybe it's a good time to even declare like it's time that that I'm done wearing pants already in January. Pants are done for the year. So from here on out, it might be shorts weather. That's uh, the... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is our, our spiritual posture for the morning as we start this. A few weeks ago, we started our, our winter teaching series called Defiance. And the, this examination of the Gospel of Mark is, is looking to find the radical ways that Jesus defied social and cultural norms, but also religious traditions and civil authorities during his ministry, but during that ministry that led to arrest, death, torture, all of, all of the things that, that we see in the narrative of Scripture. We began a few weeks ago by examining defiance as it relates to Scripture. We used the events of the day that we call Good Friday to, to really look at, at, at a great example of, of the dichotomy of defiance. The day Jesus was tried, tortured, <clears throat> executed, we saw on that day a call for Barabbas to be released from custody in the place of Jesus really is an example of an unsettling reality. That what we defy also demonstrates who and what we serve. Last week, we laid a little more foundation for this journey by noticing that the gospel of Mark is especially effective in presenting Jesus' defying culture and religion, but it also presents something else. The gospel of Mark is very clear about what happens as a consequence to this defiance. The gospel of Mark presents the submission of Jesus to the consequences of defiance. So with all of that today, we're going to add a new element to the the defiance of Jesus. We've we've seen and we will continue to see the the defiance of social and cultural norms, civil authorities, religious leaders, religious traditions. But today, we're entering the narrative of of defiance of sin, or at least attitudes towards sin and sinners. Alongside this defiance, we're going to see the, the, the near term and long-term consequences uh, that that begin to form around Jesus, all of this serves to us or serves for us as an example of what happens when we act like Jesus. But also, what we can see from this example is what we become when we don't act like Jesus. Jesus. So we are in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on the mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. And so he asked them, why do you question in your hearts? Is it easier to say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. The man jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked out through the the stunned onlookers. They were amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we have never seen anything like this before. Apparently. (laughs) And still. Now, the ministry that Jesus engaged in, in in this chapter, had some predictable results. He taught and acted with real authority, authority that exposed government, religious, and cultural leaders as counterfeit. The people saw that Jesus, acting in this authority, they saw that he is or could be the Messiah, the Son of God. They saw that he brought compassionate rescue to those that needed healing and deliverance. This is what was on display. Jesus demonstrated that the government, he demonstrated that religion and religious authorities, he demonstrated that culture, all of this, are powerless to reach and rescue the lost. The predictable result of all of that is that it attracted attention. Jesus was quickly on the radar of those that needed, those that craved, and those that sought healing and deliverance. But he's also on the radar of all of those that sought to control the lives of those needing healing and deliverance. So, all of that leads to Jesus teaching in a pretty packed house. Those that sought him, that sought him for what he he was offering, but also those that sought him for what he threatened, packed the house, packed the street, packed the alley, Those that came late could not get close enough to gain the attention of Jesus or even to get close enough to hear what he was teaching. Verse 2 of what we just read tells us what Jesus was doing. He was preaching God's word to them. And the word that's used here is, is a word that goes especially in the gospel of John. This word, logos or logos, depending on which flavor of Greek you like. I prefer logos. This Greek word carries the nuanced meaning, though, of the narrative about Jesus and the narrative that Jesus preached. So if, if we wonder what this, this logos was or is, we don't have to wait long to see because it's actually going to become an action. Five friends are about to make an epic entrance on the world stage. Now, if you have a group of buddies that tend to have great activities for afternoon or great ideas for afternoon activities that end up putting a hole in the ceiling, then you can relate to this story. Really? Nobody has friends that have ideas that end up with holes in the ceiling? I'm the only one. That's I am a friend. That's actually quite a compliment. <laughs> One of the five of this group is paralyzed. You think about like, like all of the just the, the, the nuance of what that group why were they friends? What brought them together? Like, were they like, did they go to school together? Did they, you know were they on the same ball team? Like what, what, what brought them together that, that all of them were ready to do this? One of the five paralyzed, at least one of the group heard of the ministry of Jesus and told the others. At least one of the group heard about this, how real authority was defying counterfeit authority and healing people just like their friend. At least one of them heard that and told the others. They had so much faith that this Logos was real they stopped at nothing to drop their buddy in front of Jesus. In really what is honestly a a jerk move that history excuses due to the expediency of the situation, they dig a hole in somebody's roof and lower their friend into the room where Jesus is teaching. you wonder whose house this is, and if they're in the living room looking up and saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> I read uh, a commentary on this story today that makes a pretty sound argument about whose house it really was, and, uh, and how this potentially was actually the house that Jesus lived in, and I don't think he would have minded. I don't think he did mind, So verse 2 gives us this idea, this this logos, this word that becomes action. We see the friends actually responding to the logos. Verse 5 opens the door to something completely new to the entire narrative. A new wave of defiance. A new wave of defiance that serves as the active example of of logos, the way that Jesus was teaching. Verse 5 is the first mention in the Gospels of faith as a remedy to sin. Faith as a remedy to sin defies religious expectation. Faith, something that we've defined here as a product of participation with God, not just trust and hope, but a relationship of loyalty that leads to the knowledge that regardless of what circumstances look like, regardless of the week that we've just walked through, we can know that God will do what God says that he will do because he's done it before. Jesus called out this this faith as a reason that he can forgive the sins of the paralyzed man. This is defiance in the midst of the religious. This situation just got real. Now bear in mind, what we're dealing with here is the dude was paralyzed. Jesus didn't even speak to that, at least not yet. Before he gets to the place of speaking to to the need for healing, Jesus takes the, 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 the logos and he smacks the religion in the room right across the face with it. The religious culture of this scene, they would, they would know a connection between sin and suffering. The argument would be made by the religious in the room that that man that's paralyzed on the mat deserves to be paralyzed on a mat. If you're suffering, the religious tradition tells you, if you are suffering, then you are likely sinning. To the Jewish audience in the house, it was clear to them that God was angry at this guy. He had done something. There was an affront. There was an offense. And it made sense to the religious mind that this was judgment. Now, we do know that sometimes sin can be the, the cause of sickness either the sin of the sick or the sin of of another that leads to others being sick. But a close connection to the two made by religious people is born more out of a humanist or or a pagan worldview than the worldview that's formed by the, the logos of Jesus. The idea that you get what you deserve is not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Religious people, the religious people that Jesus is smacking around with the logos, tend to focus on behavior. And so it makes sense to how this view of sin and sickness can be supported. Some behavior is risky. And the consequence of that would be sickness, judgment, or death. You think about sexual promiscuity, addiction. How about overeating? All of these take a heavy toll on the human body. There is a correlation possible between sin and sickness. We know this is true. We can make the correlation. But not all sickness can be traced back to a specific sin that we or another person have committed. Sickness and death affect us because we live in a fallen world. So what is Jesus doing here? I think Jesus is leveraging religion against the religious in defiance of their dichotomy of sin. By telling this man that his sins are forgiven, forgiven as a result of faith, Jesus invited this man into a reality that offered a healed, healthy place in community. Jesus invited this man into the rule and reign of God. That invitation, the thing that qualified this man for the invitation, was not his own work, was not his own worth, was not his ability to do anything that would earn it. His invitation into this reality was faith. Forgiveness of sin is an uncomfortable pro- prospect for, for the religious. Forgiveness, even as a construct, is difficult for worldly culture to understand. No longer is there a dichotomy of getting what you deserve or even having the ability to to exact or expect revenge as a response to sin. With this historical moment, all of that is shattered by the logos of Jesus. The first step now in addressing our talent for sin is to find forgiveness. And that forgiveness is the only thing that breaks a cycle that we know well. The cycle is this. You might be familiar with it. Sin, followed by guilt, followed by shame, followed by anger, followed by sin followed by guilt, followed by shame, followed by anger, followed by sin. The cycle continues. The harder we work to break the cycle, the more the cycle seems to work against us. And it drives us into a place of numbness and isolation. The only thing to break that cycle is the Logos only thing that'll break that cycle is the the defiance of Jesus, the narrative of faith that we can be forgiven. So in this room, Jesus is both exposing his authority and refuting counterfeit authority. He's refuting counterfeit authority that, that uses another person's sin as a mechanism of control. I know that that's happened to several of us in the room where our sin becomes a mechanism of control for others to get us to do or not do or to feel or not feel. The Son of Man came to forgive sin, to bridge the gap between God and people, not to leverage sin against another as a mechanism of control. This is a staggering approach to sin that defies Religious propriety. The religious just lost all their power. Praise God for that. The example that Jesus sets with this defiance is often one of the most difficult for us to emulate. At least it is for me. This compassionate rescue posture towards sin rather than a judgmental discomfort or rejection of sin and sinners. That really is a battleground for me. I don't know about you, but, but that is a battleground for me. I understand this logos that Jesus is teaching. I want it for myself. And man, where the rubber can meet the road, is emulating what Jesus did for me in the way that I treat other people, the way that I interact with another person's sin, the way that I interact with sinners. One hard metric that we must continually evaluate in each other as the church, this really is the activity of the church, is how much our posture towards sin Reflects God's posture towards sin. That's pretty weighty when we think about it. This is a place of accountability for all of us together. A church made of individuals, those individuals acting together. What does our posture? Reflect. Is it God's dichotomy of a response to sin, or is it the world's? In this encounter with the paralyzed man, Jesus, referring to himself as the Son of Man, forgives sin and then he heals. This is defiance of the highest order. He's smashing a paradigm of what must be done to be forgiven. He releases grace and mercy. All of this is compassionate rescue. Luke puts it like this in in Acts 15. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Thinking about using that as a foundation for response to sin and sinners. Also, this in the letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes, there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. So with the authority of God, Jesus defies religion and religious leaders, as well as a predominant culture, by freely offering grace to cover sin. The religious want there to be boundaries. They want there to be a humiliating ritual, a process that would would prove a sinner is worthy to be redeemed. Something that you have to go through. something that that can demonstrate that you've earned this. They also want to be in control of that so they can determine if people can be forgiven. Unfortunately, that attitude did not remain in the first century. We know that attitude can, can be alive and well today. When we call for others to have to behave in order to belong, we demonstrate that our defiance is not a defiance of culture, but a defiance of the living God. When we call for others to reach a standard, when we call for others to earn it, when we call for others to be worth it, we're defying the logos of Jesus. Now back into our journey through Mark, verse 13. Then Jesus went out to a lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There are many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Amen? I'm looking at all y'all. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? That's uh, an historical question that I think that we should hear again. Why does he eat with such scum? Jesus heard this, and he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Man, that can land. The abject defiance in this passage is so clear. The predominant culture and religious tradition had created a boundary of those that are worthy and those that are not. This is a system Of not seeking the lost, but making sure that the lost stay lost. We have to understand that. The religious tradition creates a dichotomy that is not about seeking the lost. It's about making sure that the lost remain lost. The only way out, the only way for a lost person to be unlost in this Paradigm is for someone to be captured in, in such a way that they can work themselves out and then prove it to the others. It's hardly a real possibility. These scum, these sinners that Mark explicitly points out, interestingly, make up a large demographic of those that are following Jesus. Those disreputable sinners are the focus of the time, the energy, and the compassion of the Savior of the world. Sometimes I think that that, that we can maybe romanticize a little bit what what this looks like in an effort to to maintain a bit of comfort when we're talking about the lost because really what do the lost look like a romanticized version that maybe i I can play over in my head is is someone in need uh with a clear need somebody that's easy to approach somebody that 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 as i approach them and and show them that i can help meet their need um are are incredibly grateful to me and thankful for the attention that I'm giving them, and, and then it ends as though um, it can be put on uh, the Hallmark Channel. The truth is, and we know this, the lost don't look that way. The lost are oft- often angry, militant, belligerent, incoherent, They're engaged in things that are offensive, scary, and dangerous. The lost are often hostile to the word of God, hostile to the logos of God, hostile to the people that have the word of God, especially when the opening presentation of this word of God is is designed to present their own debauchery rather than the love of God that he just showed this paralyzed guy. The lost can be dirty and smelly and they can be well-groomed and well-read. They can be engaged in in addiction and crime or they can be engaged in, in promoting lies of identity. The list goes on, but the common thread is that these people are the people that Jesus came to seek. These people are the people that Jesus came to seek And these are the people that Jesus, when we follow him, expects us to seek as well. Consider this unity from the Old Testament and the New. Hosea 6, we see this. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. That alongside Ephesians 4.32. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. In this, we can can find what it really looks like to follow Jesus what the Logos leads us to. But we know that there are two barriers to defiance as Jesus defied. Two barriers that make it difficult for us to defy with the example of Jesus. Two behaviors that that these behaviors actually defy God rather than religious tradition and cultural norms. They support religious tradition and they support cultural norms, especially our culture. Contempt and fear. Fear. Now, a bit ago, I mentioned that, that we will notice what happens when we act like Jesus, but also what we look like when we don't follow Jesus. I would argue that contempt and fear are the outcomes of acting like contemporary culture. The outcome of not doing the things that Jesus did is contempt and fear. Now, contempt can be very easy to spot. It can be easy to spot. We also we need to help each other spot it in our lives. We have to have conversations about this. Contempt is the feeling that a person is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. In other words, contempt is to get what they deserve. Contempt is looking at somebody in sin and deciding that God is angry with them and allowing them to stay there. Contempt also creates a behavior barrier that grace and mercy cannot penetrate. Because before you can get to the place of where I will be willing to share the logos of Jesus with you, you've got to meet this standard. In other words, you need to find a way to unlost yourself. And if you can unlost yourself, then I'll share the word of God with you. It's contempt. Contempt. When we hold others in contempt, even if it is in support of a high moral standard, we stifle the work of the gospel. Romans 12, Paul put it like this. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. When we respond with contempt to the lost, we might be demonstrating that we're lost ourselves. Another barrier, fear. Fear joins contempt as a barrier to the grace and mercy of God. Because this manifests when we look at the sinner as contagious. Think of a doctor that refuses to treat a patient because they might infect themselves. Think about the doctor that refuses to treat, or the rescuer that refuses to rescue because of the danger to, to themselves. This is how fear stifles the gospel. Fear and contempt in the heart of a person means something. Fear and contempt in the heart of a person means that that person will never be a fisher of men. And so this is how we demonstrate who or what we defy. If we develop fear and contempt, our defiance is aimed at the living God. You think about this, about how many influencers there are Promoting a call of militancy. Militancy towards or isolation from the lost. Militancy towards or isolation from sin and sinners. If we hear those calls and we abide them, we are in defiance of the one that, that didn't show militancy towards us and didn't isolate us from our own sin or because of our own sin. This does help us see that maybe a new category of lost has developed. There's a dude I'm starting to like quite a bit. His name is C.T. Stud. He is a stud. This dude was quite a stud. He, uh, I, I, I'm telling you, man, I find some weird things, and I love this one. This dude was a, well, first, anybody ever hear of C.T. Studd? Good. C.T. Studd was a famous and incredibly wealthy cricket player in 19th century Great Britain. This dude was rolling in it. As, uh, you know, you think about, like, uh, sports stars now and the, uh, you, you know, the, the acclaim and the influence that they can have. C.T. Studd could be one of the first examples of this as a cricket player. I don't know if you've ever tried to watch cricket. I mean, I'd be, I'd be willing to try with you sometime, but I, I just don't get it. But people apparently do, and they like it enough to where this guy was famous and made a lot of money playing cricket. But then C.T. Studd heard a sermon from Dwight Moody and it changed his life. He left his luxury. And when people asked him what he was doing, his answer was this. How could I spend the re- the best years of my life in living for the honors of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? C.T. Studd left England and he went looking for the lost. Using Jesus as an example of defiance to the religious and cultural expectations, C.T. Studd went where he could find the highest need, where he could find the most lost of the lost. And he taught the word of God. The logos of Jesus Every day, he woke up and he repeated a line from a poem that he heard. Every day, he woke up and said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's pretty freaking cool. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. This captures defiance that flows from the logos of Jesus. So our response to sin and sinners can defy the living God or reflect the living God. Fear and contempt demonstrate the power of this world. Humble engagement, starting with a willingness to just be present, to join the lost in a place that can create relationship. That is what leads to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And that is what reflects defiance with the example of Jesus and the love of the Father. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in the narrative of your logos that reflects not only where we've been, but where we are. But Father, I pray that that you would come now and release the gifts of your spirit in this place. And I pray that, that we could evaluate what we defy. Father, I pray that you could take each of us now to that place where you met us first. The place where we knew and felt your compassionate rescue. Would you take us there in our heart and our mind's eye? Would we see again and feel again your love and your presence? Would we remember again what it felt like when we recognize the reality that we don't have to work ourselves out of this? Would you call to mind what it felt like when we recognized a free gift? And Father, if we are in a place where that recognition hasn't come, would you bring it? Would you bring it in Jesus' name? Would you make us aware of the work that you've done on our behalf? Would you make us aware of the expectation? That you have on us would you make us aware of the friends that would dig a hole in the roof and drop us in front of you and father as we find ourselves in front of you would we hear the call to faith and father as we hear that call to faith i pray that you would help us to have faith And from the knowledge of of that faith, from, from the experience of that faith, would you also call us to those that are lost? So, Father, would you deal with us with our contempt and our fear? Father, if there is contempt and fear in our heart, would you put your finger on it now? With the memory of what you've done for us, Would you bring us to the place to do for others? In Jesus' name, amen.